0: Hello everyone and welcome to Professor P podcast. My name is Parsa Pekar and I'm your host, professor and psychotherapist. And today we're going to talk about a very interesting subject of the influence of our memory and the question we are trying to answer through this episode is can our memory be trusted? First of all, I have to say I was very amazed by the topic. So I did a whole research on it. And of course, as you know, through our each episode, we have three parts where we first do a book review at the beginning, then we'll have influential guests, which is expert in that field. And lastly, I have one of my students on the show to express their opinion on the topic. So, For this episode and for future ones too, I like to do something different for the first segment of the show. Instead of going through a book, I like to analyze a painting uh, that is related to the topic. And in the future, depending on the topic, we might do a book review or analyze of a music piece. Or painting, because I do believe art has such a powerful explanations and symbolism that can really help us to understand different topics in a different way, right? And it can symbolize so many different things. So for this episode, I've chosen The Persistence of Memory by Salvador Dali, which is one of my favorite. Uh, painter and artists uh, of all time and I'm just going to go over first of all some of the concepts of the paintings trying to analyze and then how it relates to the topic of memory and then based on those lessons how can we apply what we can see in this painting So first thing, first, The Persons of Memory by Salvador Dali. It's an iconic piece which features melting clocks and other surreal images. And what Dali does is he explores the concept of time and its fluidity in our minds. And the melting clocks present the way our perception of time can wrap and change. Something you recognize in Dali's work is there are a lot of things about time right? He has different paintings that you see a clock. But this one, of course, um, as I explain more, um, I'm going to say what what it kind of looks like. So you can have it imagine in your mind. And of course, you can search and see it. So this masterpiece challenged our understanding of the reality and the nature of time itself, which features melting clocks and other dreamlike elements. And it also shows a tranquil landscape with a row of clocks ranging from small to large that appear to be melting like wax. And the clocks faces are disordered, and their hands are limp, conveying a sense of time and losing its rigidity. So amidst the clocks, there are other objectives, such as small stone figure, a flower, and a snail, which add to the dreamlike quality of the painting, right? And the colors are kind of muted with shades of gray, brown, and green, creating a soft and haunting atmosphere. Overall, I do believe this painting invites us who look at this painting to explore the subconscious realm, which you can find that in so many of Dali's paintings, and I do believe it has so much psychology perspective toward his work and as you know he was very interested actually in Freud's work and he actually met Freud once and he was one of his role model according to him when you read his biography. So here are some lessons on the philosophy of the painting and the connection to memory. The first is the representation Against abstraction. Painting, of course, can represent reality or ex- abstractly express emotion. And this dichotomy resonates with how memory functions as we balance recalling persistent details and interpreting emotional experiences. We're going to get more into this when we have our podcast with our guest, Dr. Loftus, of how our memory can be distorted. And sometimes we can give details which are not really there. The second lesson is perception and perspective. This painting plays with perspective, which highlights how individual perspectives shape our understanding, and in result, our experiences, right? Similarly, memory is filtered through our personal experiences and biases. You know, this reminds me of a painting that there is a six, number six in the middle, and there are two people who look at it from different view, and one say this is nine, the other says six. So according to their perspective, they can understand that differently. Third lesson is about time and duration. Artists like Dolly, they, and because specifically him, I do believe he brings this innovation where he manipulate time in their work, mirroring how memory wraps our sense of time and memories can feel frozen or distorted, challenging our linear comprehension of time. Fourth is the symbolism and association. And painters often employ symbols and metaphors and memory also relies on association and symbolic connection to retrieve and reconstruct the past. Actually, you know, talking about association, this is something I do which helps me with my memory. Whenever, for example, I want to remember a name or a place, I always associate it with something that I already know, right? So, for example, if I meet someone by the name of David, I took that into consideration and I kind of associate that with King David, which I know from, you know, the past. And that way I can remember the person's name. The fifth lesson is about emotion and expression, so painting is able to convey emotions through color, texture, and composition, and memory also retains emotional resonance with feelings often more vivid than specific details, which we're going to go over that, that when we inject a false belief sometimes, we might forget the specific details and even replace it with that false belief. The sixth lesson is about layering and polym sets. So artwork can feature layers or palimpsests, sets echoing how memories accumulate and blend. And our recollections also are influenced by subsequent experiences, which blares right, the line between distinct memories. The seventh lesson is about context and environment. And many times when you look at the painting, the meaning can be shaped by the surrounding context. Much like how our memory is influenced by external factors like culture, social norms, personal beliefs, which eventually they're able to shape our view and the way we think. And Eighth Lesson is about the role of the artists and individuals themselves. So painting highlights individuals' creative agency, of course, and which parallel how memories inactively constructed narrative shaped by personal interpretation and selection. I love this one. Our memory is able to do that for different reasons. And this is the function of our brain, which many times, sometimes it suppresses some sort of beliefs in order for us to be protected. Our mind does that. So when For example, something is very painful and that happened to us many times. Our brain blocks that memory from our conscious mind and that's a defense mechanism of how our mind works. Ninth is a tension between precision and ambiguity. So painting can strive for realism or embrace ambiguity, which mirrors memory's balance between accurate details and vague recollections. I love this point, because we'll learn later. Of course, our memory can be distorted and maybe small details don't matter that much, right? But when it comes to bigger things, for example, when there is a case involved and there's a you know uh, there's a law and there's a lot of things that can inf- influence a decision, that's when our memory and the details can be even important as well. Intent is the relationship between memory and the subconscious. So, of course, artists. when we look at art, and this is a point that I do believe it's so important, we have a form of therapy which is called art therapy, which basically what art therapy does, it accesses the person's subconscious, right? So many times when we look at someone's art, we can understand their subconscious and their deep beliefs. So this is true also about artists. Artists often tap into their subconscious, which reveal how memory intersects with the unconscious mind and influence our thoughts, of course, emotions, and creativity. Now, from these lessons and the philosophy which is behind this painting, where we analyze this wonderful piece, The Persistence of Memory by Salvador Dali, we can definitely apply some of those lessons into our own life. So first is the representation against abstraction, which we need to recognize that our memories can be both factual and interpretive, which strive for accuracy while acknowledging personal perspectives. Then we need to recognize the perception and perspective, understanding that individual viewpoints shape our understanding and we are able to seek diverse perspectives, and empathy to broaden our outlook. The next thing we can learn and apply is the time and duration. So that means we embrace the subjective nature of time, we focus on the presence, we cherish moments, and we let go of expectations. The next point we talk about, symbolism and association, we can use symbols and metaphors to enrich our communication and self-expression, and which can we tap into the power of creative language. And of course, as I mentioned, it can also help us with our memory. The next point is about emotion and expression. So we need to embrace emotion as vital aspects of memory and experience and express ourselves authentically and acknowledge the emotional depth of our moments. Next lesson is about layering and Palium sets, which we need to accept the memories, accumulate and blend and integrate new experiences without erasing the past and embrace the richness of layered memories. Next lesson talks, we talk about context and environment, which we need to recognize how surroundings shape our experiences and memories and be mindful of the setting that influence our life and relationship. Then we talk about the role of the in- artists, and individuals. So we need to take ownership of our creative agency and personal narrative and actively shape our memories, values, and life story, which I absolutely love the last point. You know, I always talk about this in my class that we all have a story to tell, and we tell that to ourselves, to others, and to the world. So one of the best steps that we can do in order to live a different life, if we are not happy with the one we live it is to figure out what story we want to tell the world and ourselves. And we can tell our stories by the language we speak, right? If you find yourself having a self-talk that is very negative, you can tell that your story is negative, right? So try to be aware of your self-talk and the way you talk with others and, of course, to the world. The next point is about the tension between precision and ambiguity. So you need to find balance between detail and not so much detail stuff, right? And embrace the complexity of life and do not force things into rigid categories. Next point we spoke was the relationship between memory and the subconscious, which explore our subconscious thoughts and emotions, which means we need to engage in creative expression and self-reflection to tap into our inner world. And especially this works if you're not comfortable with doing therapy, which is, you know, you go to a therapist and just sit on the couch and you talk about, you know, whatever is happening in your life. What I would suggest is pursue our therapy because that's in a way in direct form of therapy, but at the same time, it's very beneficial. So I do believe by applying these lessons, we can cultivate, of course, a deeper understanding of our memories perspectives, beliefs, experiences, and of course, ourselves. And this philosophy, and I do believe this painting, when we look at it from that perspective, can enrich our self-awareness, creativity, and relationships. So please stay tuned, because we're going to hear from Dr. Loftus and one of my students on the question of, can our memory be trusted? Okay, now I have Dr. Loftus, my special guest. Dr. Loftus, welcome uh, to our podcast. Uh, please give one value that's important to you and why.
1: Well, I would say that one value that's important to me is is kindness. Um, um, be you know, being kind to other people, um, but also I very much appreciate when they are kind to me, and that does creates a kind of a bond and and a specialness.
0: It does. That's such an important value. So, Dr. Loftus, today we are answering the question about our memory and is our memory reliable? So I know that's your expertise. And for my first question, I would like to ask you, uh, what led you to work on this specific topic? Because I feel it's a very, you know, Uh, it's like a niche so and you've done so many work in this field so i'm curious to hear about what led you to it and you know your experience for the listeners
1: it's kind of a long story but uh when i went to graduate school uh i thought i was interested in mathematical psychology so i went to graduate school at stanford which was you know arguably the top place to study mathematical psychology but When when I got there, I found out I really wasn't that interested in mathematical psychology, but I did uh, get a chance to work with a professor on a memory project, and it was a very different kind of of memory. It was, you know, memory for words and concepts, uh, our knowledge of the world, Um, but after I got my PhD, I decided I wanted to do some work that had more obvious, practical applicability. So I knew something about memory from my experiences in grad school. Um, And I have always been interested in legal cases. And it seemed like a natural um, merging of these interests and skills to look at the memory of witnesses to crimes and accidents and other legally relevant events. And that's how I started to do experiments on eyewitness memory.
0: Very interesting. And I know you've written a book, Witness for the Defense. And uh, uh, as you were saying, I've been watching some of your uh, talks as well, Dr. Loftus, where your work has challenged the reliability of eyewitness testimony in many cases. and. So, I wonder if you can give an example of how that works. Uh, how did that work, and your research on this topic?
1: When I started the research, i was I was showing people simulated crimes and accidents and then studying their memory. And I um began to explore what happens to a person's memory when after some key event is over, they are exposed to some suggestive or biased information. They talk to another witness who remembers things wrong. They get interrogated by an investigator who's biased and and misleads them even unwittingly. Um, And um, what I discovered in this research is that when witnesses get new information that's misleading, it can contaminate or distort or alter uh, their memory or sometimes just supplement their memory but the real problem comes when it changes their memory and uh, i I published some of that work uh I, it got uh, the interest of the legal profession and that's how i started getting invited to uh testify to consult on legal cases and to testify where matters of memory were critical
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right and um I know something you mentioned, Dr. Loftus, which of course, I also work as a psychotherapist and I was very much interested about what you mentioned. And you were saying that, um, you know, if you plan a false memory, it can affect the thoughts and behavior of that person in the future, right? And I know you mentioned as a therapist, that's not ethical for our job, but you are saying how as a, as a parent, you can do that for your child. Um, so I'm curious to know about that. How would that can affect, uh, let's say, the children's life? If we just, you know, first of all, is it possible to do that? And if it is, I mean. Well,
1: so to, give you, to give you a little bit more context for where those thoughts come from, um, in some of the work I did with my collaborators, um, we planted a false memory that you got sick eating a particular food as a child. So we made some people believe they got sick on eggs or they got sick on pickles, or they got sick on something fattening like a strawberry ice cream. And we found that um, people weren't as interested in eating these foods after they developed a false belief or a false memory that they had gotten sick. Um, And I I started thinking that, um, you know, maybe this might be a kind of a dieting technique where you could get people to avoid Uh, unhealthy foods by planting a suggestion that they once got sick on the food. Uh, Maybe that would help them um, be able to live a a happier or a healthier life. Um, But there are ethical concerns because um, do you want to do this in order to get people to not eat so much, you know, pecan pie or fattening pizza or whatever it is that they're semi-addicted to. And, and, you know, some people find that a little difficult uh, uh, to take. It's kind of scary that you would plant a false memory, even if it would have this benefit. Um, But other people um, might feel differently, I included, that, uh, you know, having a little bit of fiction in there, which we already have anyhow, Mm. that could help you live a happier and healthier life you know, might be something useful to do for people under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, that's the issue. That's the ethical and, and moral issue about this scientific work. When should we use these mind engineering techniques or should we ban their use?
0: Yeah, I was actually thinking about the ethical, not only as a therapist, but, you know, overall. So, you know, this is interest, that's interesting, Dr. Loftus, because, I consider myself having a very good memory. For example, when I meet someone and they tell me their name, I can remember it a couple years afterward, right? And so many well, things what are you doing?
1: What are you doing to commit that to memory? Are you doing? do you have some trick?
0: Yeah, I always relay that to something. So let's say if someone's I don't know name, starts with an e i would put that with another thing that started with e so my mind you know kind of compare those two and put them to, there is like a term for that i don't know what it is called so like, oh
1: okay so if their if their name is ed then you you visualize them with an egg on their head
0: no for example if oh. uh for example elizabeth right let's say okay. and their name is elizabeth well your name is <laughs> like so i for example think of queen elizabeth and then i put them together so i
1: see um, okay
0: their name but also you know dr loftus overall i remember things very vividly about the past so for someone like me or some people who have very good memories this does this work in any way i mean i'm just curious to know how would if we want to plant i'm not saying you know we should do it or not but how do we plant that memory? You know, the false memory, uh, in the first place.
1: Well, there, there are a number of ways to distort somebody's memory or to plant an entirely false memory. In in my earlier work, we would dis- distort people's memory for events that they actually did see. So they might they might say see see a car go through an intersection with a yield sign, and then you ask them a question like, uh, "Did another car pass that little red?" Uh, sports car when it was at the intersection with a stop sign. Um, in other words, you've suggested a stop sign. You've introduced it in the question, and m- many people will then start to think, oh, "Yeah, I saw, I saw a stop sign, uh, not a yield sign." So that's an example of how we've actually introduced a dis- made a distorted memory for an event that was actually witnessed. But we can plant entire memories in the minds of people um, by, you know, telling them that um, we've talked to family members and found out certain things happened to them when they were a child Mm. uh, and take them through some suggestive and leading interviews that will lead them to develop a memory of being lost in a shopping mall or Uh, uh, being attacked by a vicious animal or having a serious uh, indoor or outdoor accident. All of these things have been planted into the minds of ordinary, otherwise uh, healthy adults.
0: Mm -hmm. So it's a way of maybe suggesting alternative ways of thinking that can help to plan that. I think that's what you're kind of saying. That's how you get distorted, the memory.
1: Well, I I mean, I didn't, it's too short of time to go through the specifics Mm -hmm. of the different methods. There's so many ways that, uh, that I and other psychologists have developed uh, for uh, planting ideas and beliefs and memories in the minds of people. And, you know, they're, they're all a little bit different. You know, sometimes we say to people, we've talked to your mother and your mother told us these things happened to you. What do you remember about the events? Um, And, we could do it that way. Or we we could say when we interviewed you two weeks ago, here, here are some things you told us happened to you as a child. Could you elaborate on some of them? And uh, not all of those are true. Um, mm-hmm. So it, you know, it depends on the specific study that the particular investigator did. There are just a variety of methods for doing this.
0: Yeah, I think something that comes to my mind too, Dr. Loftus, is not, maybe when you implant the memory, it's not so much about the memory, but the person who believes that thought that starts a whole process in them, which affects, you know, their behaviors or their feelings, emotions. Would you say that's the way? Yeah.
1: Yeah, because sometimes these suggestions plant what we call a belief rather than a memory. So they start to think the thing really happened, even though they don't have a feeling that they're remembering it. But that's often the first step down that royal road to developing a false memory. You know, if I could just get you to believe that you've obviously had a very bad experience with a dog as a child, just the way you're reacting to dog pictures. Um, and now you start thinking, I guess I did. You don't yet have a memory, but if I keep you know, putting a little pressure on you to try to remember it, I can, for many people, get them to remember it.
0: Mm, And that memory is not really true about what was happening with them.
1: Right. It's totally made up.
0: Mm, Yeah. So something else come to my mind, I love this. This works also, like with maybe people who've experienced so much trauma. Like, I'm just thinking, for example um you know people with ptsd who experience like you know a war or something like that would you say this method might work for them if they're in a space where you know they can feel Um,
1: well i don't know because you know in my studies we were generally um have research uh subjects who are um not experiencing Mm -hmm. the debilitating uh post-traumatic stress disorder um, and whether whether something like this, some kind of um, memory manipulation, could could reduce the symptoms of PTSD? I mean, that's it's it's an empirical question. Um, there 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 people have said that there's a, a a drug, propranolol, that you can give people who've had a traumatic experience that will weaken the memory to some extent and loosen the emotional grip it has and uh, maybe reduce the chances that they'll develop PTSD. Um, and there have been some clinical trials with that substance, whether you could do it without drugs uh, with some kind of suggestive intervention. I'm, I'm just not sure.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that can be a good, I think, research topic for, for this, you know, method that we are discussing, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. So um something else you mentioned, Dr. Loftus, which I'm interested to know your perspective more on it. You said, you know, memories work like a Wikipedia page where you can go and change it. So can other people go and you know maybe change some of it. So um I'm curious how are you is that what the technique we are talking that you're mentioning, that's how it works or
1: well, I gave you an example of how somebody else can manipulate your memory
0: mm-hmm. by, by
1: asking you a leading question or telling you that some other witnesses saw it differently. Um, that, that's a memory manipulation that is created through external suggestion. But people distort their own memories. So, so there is research showing that people remember that they got grades that were better than they really did in school that they voted in elections they didn't vote in that they gave more to charity than they really did that that their kids their children walked and talked in an earlier age than they really did these are prestige enhancing memory distortions that people kind of do all on their own why do they do that i mean it may maybe they feel a little bit better about themselves um um, or there could be other other motivations, although it, it does seem that these individuals really do believe in these distorted memories rather than they're just deliberately trying to lie for some secondary gain.
0: Yeah, which I was actually thinking about, that, especially, I think, in legal cases, right, which you've been involved, Dr. Loftus, in your research. I wonder how can you differentiate if they, you know, truly believe that, and that's, I still said, they don't have any other intentions or they just lying to me for whatever reasons, you
1: know, uh, you can't really, I mean, you know, when people say something that isn't accurate, that's not authentic, you you need other information to know whether they genuinely believe what they're saying or whether they're d- deliberately lying. It's a big fat lie uh, and they know it. And you know, in many of the cases that I work on, I, I believe that these people with a potentially distorted memory uh, really believe in what they're saying. Now, I've had a few cases where I think it's a deliberate lie because you get some other information. You find another witness who said, you know, she once told me that she was gonna make this up because she wanted to get a lot of money from the person. Mm. Now, there's There's some other evidence that suggests it might be a big fat lie but you
0: don't always have that. Yeah, yeah. So you have to see other factors, how they play in that part. Um, So going back to our original questions, Dr. Loftus, that we say, you know, is, can our memory be trusted? And I know something else you mentioned was, you know, memory like liberty is a fragile thing. So can we really trust our memory, you think, or it's not that trusted?
1: Well, well, we do, we trust it you know, it serves us fairly well. I mean, yeah. you know, it's memory that allows us to get up and make coffee in the morning and put toast in the toaster and find the car keys and um, drive the car to, to work or school or wherever you're going. Um, and so obviously it's serving us pretty well. Um, but, but memory is not always accurate. And for the most part, we probably don't, we're not even aware of the mistakes we make. So if if I tell you I had you know chicken last night and, instead of hamburger, I it, you don't know if it's true or not. I, I'm, I may be saying something wrong. I don't get caught. you don't correct me. And And these small little errors of memory may not matter very much, but when it comes to somebody's liberty, then very precise memory does matter i mean it matters whether the robber you know had curly hair or straight hair mm-hmm. or whether the getaway car was green or blue um and, you know these these details uh can can mean the the difference between liberty and freedom or somebody getting money that, that they don't deserve or versus money they do deserve
0: mhm mhm so i wonder how knowing you know this this will help us to have you know like to deal with the way we maybe you know remember things do you think it's important to you know let's say like pay attention to details or how would how would this help us of Loftus to you know deal with our memories I would say
1: I think having some healthy skepticism about memory is probably a good idea
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but 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 one way that my years of working on these problems I think has affected my life is that when somebody makes a mistake a friend a family member they say something that is different from from my memory you know I don't immediately assume they're a big liar i mean they they may have a they may be human and have a false memory or distorted memory and it's a kinder way to feel about people than to think they're deliberately trying to you know pull the wool over your eyes
0: Mm -hmm. so it gives us better perspective toward them i feel toward other people and the way we relate to them
1: right and usually you know usually when attorneys are wanting uh, an expert witness with this kind of expertise it is because they're troubled by conflicting memories and they um would like to challenge the memory in, in a, in a kinder way and not have to call somebody a liar.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So how do you see this Dr. Loftus going forward, their research, uh, you know, and of course with something like mm-hmm. AI that, that is getting very popular, is that going to be an effect on that? Um, how do you see research moving forward?
1: Oh, uh, well, we w- we will see, um, I mean, we we you know there's now been quite a few studies on how doctored photographs can contaminate memory. If I create a doctored photograph of you engaging in a particular activity as a child, um, I can get you to start to believe this really happened to you when you were a child. Um, well, with deep fakes and the ability of people to uh, have access to deep fake technology, um, where you can basically create a video of someone doing anything you want them to be saying or doing, um, it's going to be a way to plant false beliefs or, or false memories into the minds of unsuspecting people. And we're probably going to need to figure out some ways to regulate it.
0: Mm, right. And so-
1: right now, I, there are a number of projects that people are, are working on right now that have to do with deep fakes and memory distortion
0: deepfakes is the one you're mentioning that like you can create a whole video of that person like as a child and then they start to kind of do whatever like you want them to believe basically is that yes. yeah that can be very interesting if i feel off this yeah i think it can create i mean when i think about it of course i think about the positive side but it can create some really like maybe confidence in people and you know the way maybe they've approached things can be so different right because you mentioned at the beginning how when we plan a false memory or or a thought or or belief it can affect their later thoughts and behaviors so i can see on the positive side what. well we
1: you know we've been more thinking about the dangers of it but Mm -hmm. uh you're You're getting me to think that, uh, and this would be kind of a cool research project. Um, if you created a deep, if I were to create a deep fake of you giving some kind of sensational confidence speech in some public setting, and I were to show that to you, would would that increase your confidence and your speaking abilities in in yourself? I mean, that, that's an empirical question, but that, that might be kind of a benefit of these deep things.
0: Yeah, and I would be happy to be part of that research, but I do think it affects, you know, Dr. Loftus, because, I mean, as therapists, right, and psychoanalysis, when we talk about that, we talk about how our childhood affects, you know, the person and how they, you know, interact with others, their relationship and with the world. And many times... Like when I think even about my childhood and something happened to me, I start to have some feelings, right? And um, sometimes I discover things even now about myself that I can trace it back all the way to my childhood. I have like, as I said, especially I have like a memory that I can remember things. So I remember moments where I experienced something as a child. And as a grown up, I kind of go as if I'm going through the same thing, but now I'm grown up. But the child is still there, and it's hurt, you know, so called. So that would be actually very interesting. Now it got me curious too.
1: <laughs> well, you know, you're you're reminding me of a study that was done, you know, more than twenty years ago by some other investigators, where they they interviewed fourteen year olds about their childhood. And mm-hmm. then came back to them when they were in their 40s. And people remember things very differently when they're middle aged adults than uh, they were when they were teenagers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they. Uh, anyhow, so, the, well, it just, it just brought that study back to mind.
0: Interesting. Yeah, so I mean, uh, it's such a topic that it's very interesting, I think, for many people. Uh, You know, I was talking to you, Dr. Loftus, beforehand that I didn't have that much knowledge about it. Of course, I still have to do a lot of research, but I was preparing to speak with you. It really kind of made me think about a lot of things, especially, you know, how that can really affect people if we, I mean, I know there's positive and dark side to it, but how, you know, our interpretations, even of the events can affect the way we look at things and relate to the world.
1: So you say that you you do psychotherapy sometimes?
0: Yes, I. Agree. So you
1: you might you know you might find uh, even more relevant to you and in that interest a book that I co-authored after Witness for the Defense called The Myth of Repressed Memory, which uh, you know you can get super cheap you know online and paperback. Um, but it it it's similar, and and my co-author is the same co-author uh, as the Witness for the Defense book. Kathy, Ketchum. Kathy um, Ketchum. And and um, but it, it has to do with some of the influence of psychotherapy and some of the some of the negative things that some psychotherapists have done in terms of manipulating the memories of their patients, even unwittingly.
0: Mm, right, right. Yes, I would be more than happy to do that. So first of all, Dr. Lopez, I just want to thank you for being here i really enjoy my conversation with you i think you're doing such a great job so i just want to thank you and for our last question this is something we always ask if you can suggest one act of kindness to our listeners what would that be
1: oh well you know when i think of kindness in my in my circle of friends and family i mean i i just think of my friend who helps me with my computer problems or you know an, an, another friend that helps me when something when something breaks or uh, you know the my, my friend who brought food over during the pandemic and when it was hard to socialize and and times were so different and um you know there can be big or small acts of kindness that people when when it's done for me it just makes me feel really good and And when I do it for somebody else that does, it does have a bit of a helper's high when you do something that helps make somebody else feel better. So I think the world would be better off if we all did more of that.
0: Yeah, great. You know something I always talk in my class, the first day Dr. Loftus, I asked my students to give their philosophy, like what is your life philosophy? And for me, it's always when we serve, we are the happiest. So I do believe when we do a service for others, not only we make other people happy, but we make ourselves happy. And this is something that, as you said, you know, I experienced in my life. I'm sure you do, and many people who, you know, have done something for someone, they can firsthand experience them for themselves and for others too. Right on! So, yeah, thank you, Doctor Loftus, for being here.
1: Okay, well, good luck with your your podcast and everything else you're doing.
0: Thank you. Okay, I have Bella, one of my former students. Bella, welcome. Please introduce yourself and give one value that's important to you and why.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm Bella, um, and I just graduated from Pepperdine about one month ago, and one value that is very important to me is joy. I just think it's so important to seek out joy each and every day. Um, it, it can be in small ways. That's usually how I find my joy. Um, it could be through listening to my favorite song. It could be talking to my best friend or Or even going on a walk just little things that um, make me happy and um, filled with joy Um, I just think there's so much um, pain in the world and Mm. um, suffering and it's really just important to combat that with finding your own personal joy each and every day
0: yeah and sometimes that means being down with the school right
2: it sure does. Yes, definitely. Yes. It's... How's
0: everything been since graduation for you?
2: Oh, it's been honestly a bit of an interesting shift in my life because I was so used to having class, school, papers, um, exams, just so much stress that came from school. So not having that has genuinely been a blessing I think and it's given me an opportunity to have more time for myself and to enjoy my hobbies. Um, so yeah it's been really lovely.
0: Great and you did very well in the class in our class.
2: Thank <laughs> you.
0: There. <laughs> so Bella today's topic we're talking about the influence of memory and you know the question we're answering is can our memory be trusted? Um. So I just want to know your opinion on the subject. What do you think about our memory and if we can trust it, etc.
2: Okay, so this, I would say, before I went to psychology school, I would say, uh, yeah, of course. Like, we can trust our memory. Like, I have memories from when I was a kid that are so vivid and I can, you know, access them very quickly but as i've learned more about our brains how um just how everything works especially when it comes to our brains translating these memories and storing them it as it turns out you know some of our memories they're not as um maybe some of them aren't real some of them have been edited by our brain like I like to think of our brain as a computer and Mm. when we store memories in it um sometimes our brains can have fun with it sometimes our brains can add different memories to old memories it can splice different um you know memories that we've had from a long time ago or even other people's memories that we've kind of taken into our brains so now that I think about that question I just think wow I there's there's a lot of our memory that, um, again, is influenced. And of course, I don't want to invalidate my own or anyone else's lived experiences and their memories. But um, sometimes, you know, our brains can do that, you know, they they can edit our, our memories. So it's kind of a difficult question when you think about it, because it's like, you, I feel like personally, I want to believe that, our um you know our memory is true and our these memories are real but unfortunately our brains do um have a say and have a hand at it
0: yeah i think what you are so referring to is can, it can be distorted basically our mm-hmm. memory or the information we receive and i think maybe one reason is maybe we want to believe in something different right that happened mm, yes. for us or the experience was maybe painful. So we're trying to reframe it in a way. So you'd be better. Right. What do you think is the reason maybe our brain does that? Because our brain is very, you know, smart and it can certainly, of course, has also defense mechanism, right? We learned that in psychology that help us as individuals.
2: Right.
0: Um, so what do you think our, our brain does that? Bella?
2: Yeah, so I worked a lot last year with, clients who suffered from loads of trauma. They had a lot of trauma and um, going back with them in their memories and their experiences. I just found that um, some of it, they felt like they can't remember some of it. And that was a little shocking to me until I remembered from my psychology classes, how our brains are really good at protecting us. Mm. And sometimes they'll um, you know, hide away those memories, or sometimes you can't remember certain things that happened. So I think part of it is definitely our brains attempting to protect us from negative memories. But then I also think on the flip side about the positive memories and memories you do want to remember. And this topic makes me think like, oh, good goodness, like how much of uh, the positive memories I have have been influenced by Just other factors and other parts of our brain, like even our dreams, other people's stories, uh, music, um, visual media, like there's so much influence that can affect our brains and our memories. So, yeah, it's just such an interesting um, conversation for sure.
0: That's a really good point. So Bella, what's next for you in terms of your career?
2: Yeah, so um right now I am waiting for my associate's number and then after that I will be looking for a job. <laughs> so it's just right now again it's more of a transitional period of my life. Um so yeah, that's going on and then hopefully I can be licensed in about like 2 to 3 years. I don't really have a um strong time stamp on When I need to be licensed, but I think I'm just going to take my time and, you know, learn as much as I can, um, continue exploring different populations I'd like to work with, since that's something that I still um, am struggling with a bit, just because, you know, every population has something to offer and it's so fascinating. So I really would love to, yeah, just keep exploring. And this field is so vast, so I'm sure it'll be a good time.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if there's a certain population you're interested with, but it sounds you have a broad interest.
2: Definitely, yes. And I think it's because of my um, experience working in community mental health. It just came with so many different experiences. It, It was never one population. It was so diverse and especially in regard to, you know, problems that people brought to the table. There was a lot of of just different um, experiences. So, um, yeah, I'm just keeping an open mind and I'm really looking forward to my next two years.
0: (laughs) Yes, good to hear. So uh, for our last question, Bella, uh, we always ask our guests if they can suggest one act of kindness. What would that be? So what is for you if you would like to suggest one?
2: something that i would suggest i'm really big on compliments Mm. and they make me feel good and i know they make other people feel good um i do work in retail that's like the job i have right now and i'm very generous with my compliments and i really do notice that it makes a difference and it doesn't have to be a compliment about someone physically it can be like wow I love your energy or I love you know you have a beautiful smile or you know it was great talking to you like just stuff like that that can really brighten someone's day
0: yes it does Bella thank you for being here
2: thank you for having me
0: Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to be with you in the next episode. And meanwhile, if you want to stay connected, you can reach me via email at contact at parsapaycar.com.